Welcome to Leonard Lopate Online, and I'm <laughs> at large, I'm Leonard Lopate. Uh, although Billie Holiday has been one of the most intensely chronicled figures in jazz history, you'll find lots of surprises in James Erskine's new documentary about her art, her lasting impact on American music, and her tumultuous life. It's been assembled in part from previously unheard audio interviews with some of the key players in the great singer's 44-year life, including friends, family, musical collaborators, law enforcement officials, lovers, and even a pimp who pressed her into prostitution when she was barely a teenager. It also includes wonderful film clips of her performances over the years of her brief hard knock life. It's currently in theaters and streaming online. And James Erskine joins us now along with Michelle e. Smith, the film's executive producer and the executor of the Billy Holiday Estate. Welcome to our show. Hi, nice to Hi, thank you for having us. Of course, uh, it's, a, it's a fabulous film. Uh, uh, was learning about the 200 hours of audio interviews what got you thinking about making this film? Yes, absolutely it was. I mean, I've, uh, I first got into Billy Holiday about 20 years ago for my uh, listening pleasure. Um, and then I heard about the story of this journalist, Linda Lipnat Keel, who had uh, um, spent a number of years of her life trying to write her, what she hoped would be the definitive biography of Billy Holiday in the 1970s. And that she had, um, I heard the story that she had died in the process of writing the book, and I thought that was kind of uncanny, especially if you know anything about Billy Holiday's story. And then I found out that she actually recorded those um, everybody that she'd interviewed. And so, yeah, absolutely, the starting point for this was how do we get the tapes, and can we get the tapes, and is there anything on the tapes? And if there is something on the tapes, is it the basis of a, of a film? And, and, you know, happily... Once we found the tapes and got the access, we felt that there really was a, 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 this great new way to tell Billy, which is a new way to access his 50-year-old testimonies, you know, the eyewitnesses, the people that really knew Billy. And, and, and that, to me, was sort of extraordinary. Well, there were 125 cassettes. That's an awful lot of material to draw from. And you mentioned uh, that they had been, the interviews had been conducted in the 70s by Linda Lipnack-Kuhl, uh, who, she, who was a high school teacher, part-time journalist, but she had decided to put together uh, a biography of the singer when she was found dead uh, in what was labeled a suicide, but perhaps is an unsolved true crime story in itself. Not the major part of the film, but something that does come up. Yeah, yeah. But by the way, can I, Michelle, you can jump in at any time you want. Uh, I realize I'm speaking to James, who who made the film, but uh, you played a major role in it. So if you have some things you want to add, please just jump in, okay? Not a problem. Okay, James, you were saying. Yeah, no, I mean, remember, remember she, was, she, was a high, she was a teacher, but she was also a journalist. She wrote for the New York Magazine. She wrote for Paris Review. She was particularly interested in um, exploring the stories of women in the arts. She felt, you know, she was a feminist. It was the late 60s, early 70s, and that women hadn't been given a voice or had their stories told by women. And so she wanted to, Billy Holiday, who was somebody that she knew had suffered greatly, she wanted to sort of try and find the real woman, you know, and trying to sort of, in a way, you know, 
to a large degree, history has been curated by men, and she felt that she she had something to offer, and that she could go and ask different questions about Billy and really try and create a picture of of this incredible woman. And I think I think she 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 did do that. I mean, I think her interviews are extraordinary. Her her style was extraordinary, and, and you hear it throughout the film. You know what she's able to draw out of people. You know, and and that's that's really to me, the, the heart of the film. And I'm really happy that she was able to to get all the interviews and the, the hours of tapes because we get to see a portrait of Billie Holiday that I don't think a lot of people would have seen if it weren't for what Linda had uncovered and how they've been put together. Okay, I'm back again. I'm sorry. It was something that happened on my end. Suddenly my connection to the radio station just clicked off. What were you saying? Well, I was saying that I'm grateful that Linda was able to um, acquire these interviews and um, that she was able to uh, meet with all these people and interview them because we get a, uh, a different look at who Billie Holiday is and was mm. uh, that I don't think other people would have seen before. Uh, James, you say that uh... The these the, the two hundred hours of often sprawling conversations were here, so that was an awful lot to go through. How did you determine what you wanted to include, uh, and was it important that you not tell the same story that everybody else told? Um, well, I, I was pretty confident that we wouldn't be telling the same story exactly the way other people had told it, and I think that you know, hearing the tapes, we knew that there would be insights, but. I guess there were two ways that we really wanted to tackle it. Number one is actually, although I had the access to the tapes, I actually started the production, planning the film by trying to locate what film performances of Billy uh, remained. Mm -hmm. She wasn't filmed very much, but I knew that I wanted Billy to be the star of her own movie so that you not only heard her, but you saw her, partly because, you know, as many people say in the film, you know, her, People to whom she was a hero, like Tony Bennett or her peers, you know, say, say, you know, the thing about Billy was she's great on record, but she's unbelievable. And, you know, when you see her face, you know, that was a great art as a performer to really hold an audience. So I really wanted to well, aspect with Billy, and also I felt that was a way to communicate Billy's intent. You know, she didn't do a lot of interviews, and uh, she was not educated to a high level. She was not particularly articulate as a speaker, by all accounts, but she she told her story through song. So I, I, I took the film performances that I could, and I laid the film out like a musical, and made sure that Billy was going to be really present, and also that we got to sort of almost see her sing in reaction to the stories that were being told about her. And then with the tapes themselves, I mean, the tapes themselves, some of them were in terrible condition. They hadn't been recorded. Uh, for posterity, they were 50 years old, and it was a little bit like a, first of all, it was a little bit like archaeology. We had to sort of destroy really great sound technicians to excavate the words to bring them out from all the fuzz and the noise and background music so that we could hear them clearly. And then we made a, a I, I sort of felt that something about Billy was, was, it was like something out of a film noir, you know. There are two people that die in the story. There's Billy and there's, there's Linda and there's a mystery. And it felt like this was a sort of exploration of what people's truth is. So we made a rule when we were listening to the tapes that 
it would only include material when people were describing as they were an eyewitness either an incident where they had been present or involved in, or they could relay a conversation that they had had directly with Billy, but that what was going to differentiate the film was that we weren't going to have this people processing other people's stories. We weren't going to... That we were going to keep it as raw in the moment as we could. And as you said earlier, you tracked down photographs and film clips of her performances and, and TV appearances. And I'd imagine some of that material wasn't in the best shape and had to be restored. Yeah, yeah, we did a significant amount of restoration. And uh, yeah, we were lucky that the movie opens with um, uh, Billy performing Now or Never in 1950. And we actually found a 35mm uh, a print actually in London that had never been. Um, to a projector, so <laughs> we got that sort of gold dust to sort of find, you know, and scratch perfect. And also because we had a plan that we, you know, which we executed, which is that we wanted to colorize um, some of the material. And we wanted to colorize it for a very specific reason. And the reason was that Billy's world was full of color. You know, she was a vibrant person in the nightclubs, the dresses, everything was full of vibrancy and life. And the only reason that we don't have any very much color material of, of Billy. The period is because of technology, and we felt that it would be, it would create a greater immediacy and a greater relationship with Billy if you could see her in color, you know, and I think we wanted mm -hmm. to make it accessible to audience as wide as possible. Now, that's obviously a difficult thing to do, and colorization, some people think, is controversial. I'm not sure I fully agree. Actually, I think it's all about how well it's executed. Uh, um, it didn't bother me. I know it bothered a couple of critics, but it didn't bother me. Uh, I, it actually added something to it. And since I had seen Billy perform live at one point, uh, it brought back all sorts of wonderful memories. Uh, Michelle, the film begins with Billy's abusive childhood in Baltimore and then later in Harlem when she was sexually exploited. Do you think that determined uh, that she would always have a troubled personal life? and lead to the, the promiscuity and the, the drug use that plagued her throughout her, her brief life? I think that's a generalization to say that if you are sexually abused, well, because many people have triumphed over such tragedy, mm -hmm. but I think for her, this is a time where you get to understand who she is because you get to see her childhood and you get to see the childhood trauma that she went through. And it does explain a lot about the promiscuity and, um, why she reacts or she does certain things and why she chooses the wrong men. You know, she wasn't the best at choosing men in her life. And you can see that it comes from her childhood. So I, I appreciate that we get to see her in her totality looking from childhood to adulthood. We have a better understanding of who she is and why she chose a certain path that she chose uh, so that we can have more empathy uh, because we have a better understanding of who she is. And not just depicting her as just a victim. Oh, not at uh, all. Because when you look at her in this film, I think James has shown she's a strong black woman. She's a strong woman, period. She's a survivor. You know, she lived on her terms. Not everything um, was the way that she wanted it to be. But she, you know, she was a fighter. And it's very evident in how she lived her life and how she battled uh, to sing some of the songs that she sang. So um, very evident in the film. She didn't have the, the, the best of uh, parenting. Uh, how old was she when she moved from Baltimore to New York? 
James? Hello? She was thirteen, fourteen. So she was pretty young. Uh, and she was uh, beyond the sexual things. Uh, when did she begin singing for a living? Gosh. Yeah, I mean, she, I think she was, she was singing from when she was young, I think. You know, mm -hmm. she was singing uh, in, in brothels, and she was singing on the streets, and she would get money. So at what point that became... Getting uh, getting paid for her work, I think probably probably pretty young. But then she would be singing the speak easies in Harlem, you know, when she's fourteen, fifteen years of old age, uh, and then eventually moved moved downtown. And she was uh, exploited as an artist, often paid rather poorly, even after she became a star. Uh, she. Uh, but she sang with for a whole bunch of with a whole bunch of uh, major people. First, uh, Count Basie's orchestra. Uh, for and then she worked over the years with jazz greats Teddy Wilson and Lester Young. But should we be surprised that despite the racial climate of the times, she sang with a number of prominent white orchestras: Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, Paul Whiteman. I, I mean, and maybe Michelle can speak more to it, but I think she 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 was very brave. She chose to she chose to, or she always chosen to be to be one of the first black singers with a with a white band. In Art Shaw's case, I think she was brave in singing that. I think. But she was also forced to. She was also because of racial discrimination forced many times to sleep in the bu the band's bus while her bandmates stayed at hotels. Sometimes she was even denied access to venues entirely. Uh, where she was supposed to perform. And we're not just talking about the South. This this also happened right in New York. Well, let's go back. First off, let's put ourselves in her shoes. Let's think of ourselves as a black young female in the 20s and 30s. And, okay, she was born in 1915. Do you really think she was, um, for someone who wanted to just sing and to perform, do you think that she really had a choice of who she sang for or what she did in that sense? Or do you think she took the opportunities that were afforded to her? So if it were an all-white orchestra or all-white band that said, come sing with us, do you think she'd turn it down if, if that's her goal? Well, there were stars. Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, Paul Whiteman. Yeah. This, was a, this would have been a, a great break, although... Uh, she was usually the only African-American in those groups, and that sometimes led to rather troubling situations. Wasn't she even asked to darken her skin color at one point? Correct, but my point is some of these things I don't think she was so happy or um, uh, 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 happy to do. Yes, she was asked to darken her skin. Yes, she was not able to find food some days because they were able to go into restaurants. She was not. Yes, they were able to go into hotel rooms. Uh, uh, to sleep and she had to stay on the bus. Yes, she suffered many um, humiliating things by going through the, the, the back of the buildings to, while everyone walked through the front door and she was the headliner on the stage. You know, these are things that I, I, she didn't get to choose, to, she didn't want to do, but that is the time of which she lived. So I think we have to also put that into the context of the story and how we look at how she lived her life too. I, I, I also to, think she was young. She was very young at that time as well. You know? mm -hmm. She was in control. She didn't have a lot of choices. 
You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guests are filmmaker James Erskine and uh, exec- and uh, his new film is called Billy. And we're also speaking with the film's executive producer, Michelle E. Smith. And uh, well, since she was subject to uh, racial discrimination, uh, do you think that was one of the reasons she she recorded one of the uh, the most powerful records ever made, Str- Strange Fruit, in 1939? I, I think that's I think one reason. Uh, James, do you want to go ahead? No, no, you go ahead. Go ahead, Michelle. I was just going to say that I think that's one reason. I think, you know, when you're subjected to being less considered less than human or treated as you were less than human and you know, we have to remember, too, that her father had passed away and that um, he had tried to get medical help from a white hospital that turned him away, and he died the next day. So in her eyes, it's our understanding that she considered that basically um, a, another form of lynching because he could not get the basic sure. services that any human should be allowed to have. So I think the singing of Strange Fruit that she started singing in 1939 came out of that um, you know, we see from various readings that uh, she was nervous to sing it at Cafe Society uh, the first time she performed it because she knew she'd be altering her life. She knew that by taking a stand, things would change. But I think that's where you see that she is a fighter. She is a survivor because this was her personal protest. So for her to sing this song every, you know, every day for 20 years, it was her way of protesting the indecencies that... Um, she and other African-Americans in the United States were facing and still face to this day. Maybe we should listen to it. Here's a recording of Strange Fruit, Billie Holiday. Smell of burning flame. 
Here's a fruit for the crows to pluck, for the rain to gather, for the wind to suck, for the sun to So it gives me goosebumps to hear that. Billie Holiday singing Strange Fruit. Interesting side story. It was composed by Abel Mirapol, who later adopted the sons of the Rosenbergs when the Rosenbergs were executed. Uh, John Hammond, who produced many of her recordings, said, uh, I heard a singer who was like an improvising horn player. Was that unique at the time? Gosh, um, yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that really that makes Billy stand out is that, you know, she comes from a sort of different background, you know, from a lot of singers. She doesn't come through the church. She doesn't come with that support mechanism. She comes in a much more, she learns to sing to please audiences from a very early young age. And I think, and she's inspired by, by Louis Armstrong and the people that she listens to, you know, that's, that's her big input. So she, she mimics it. I think, I think, you know, she's still unique for that today. I think that she, she really does play her voice like it's her voice box, like it's an instrument. And she was called a blues singer at the start, but she only recorded a, a few blues. Billy's blues, probably the most prominent. Um, I, I said, I suggest, I assume that's an example of racial stereotyping. Uh, but she really did have a major impact on uh, all jazz vocals after, and she's been credited uh, by some people with changing the face of American history. Do you agree, Michelle? I definitely agree. And I think it's also interesting because even in the film, I think the film touches on how, you know, certain people were given titles uh, as, you know, the king of of swing or the the, you know, and were they really the king of swing or did they really start that musical genre? Where I think when you look at Billie Holiday, her voice um, is so haunting. Her, her, to me, she is a vocal genius. She had such a unique, restrained voice that had such distinctive phrasing. I think that it's, it's so interesting when you hear her, especially over the years, to hear how she grew in her vocal ability and how it changed and grew through her emotions. Um, so I think when you, when you really dissect her as an entertainer, as a, as a vocalist, you, there's so much there to unpack. But she was considered royalty to some degree. She was called Lady Day. How did she come to be called Lady Day? Well, I mean, as the film tells you, uh, Lester Young gave her the name, mm. uh, Lady Day. He was the president, uh, I believe mother was the Duchess, and there was Count Basie. Yeah, that's how they became the royal family when they were on the road together. 
She had a wonderful collaboration with Lester Young, uh, the Prez, uh, she, and also with Teddy Wilson. So, and they maintained uh, part of her life through much of her life, didn't they? Uh, yes, yes, unfortunately, Lester, yes, and Lester Young had passed away um, shortly before she did, and she wanted to sing at his funeral, and and they had such a close relationship, um, just a close friendship. So Now, in the film, uh, friends say that she had a strong masochistic streak. Should we be surprised, Michelle, because... As I said earlier, she'd been raped as a preteen and was turning tricks by the time she was 13. Um, um, I don't know if you should say, should we be surprised? I mean, everybody as an individual is different and you know how they are raised and the environments that they are raised do help shape them as they are adults. Um, but I think also when you look at the terms that are used back then, they may be different than how we phrase those terms today. Um, masochistic or psych, uh, you know, um, psychopathic or whatnot. The terminology back then to now are, it was a little bit different. And, as, and in the film, they do give an example of what they meant by that, which is a little different than how we look at it in today's uh, society in 2020. But yes, her her upbringing does shape who she is. And I, I think you had mentioned earlier, you know, um, she's so much more than the victim um, that a lot of people want to, um, when they hear of Billie Holiday, they describe her as the victim, where I think this film paints her in, in a totally different light and shows just the depth of who she is and how, you know, I've said this in other interviews, she was a woman who wanted to love and be loved, and she just wanted the white picket fence and some, you know, children to love. So, which is a, another side of her that most people did not know. Yeah, well, she yeah, also say, comes across as rather strong-willed at times. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think I, she was. We were both talking at the same time. Sorry, That's what happens when you do uh, yeah, a, a thing over the phone. Fine. Forgive me. Uh, um, yeah, no, I mean, actually, both being strong-willed and, and, and the massacre's point, I, I guess I would say Billy was Billy was smart at times. You know, the men she chose to be with, yeah, a lot of them turned out to be abusive, but they were also they were also the alpha males in the you know somewhat shady world of nightclubs that she was operating in. You know, they were you know they weren't necessarily the nicest piece of work, but in a way that they offered her some degree of protection and. Elevation. I mean, John Levy, you know, he's talked about a lot in the film, you know, looked after her, according to her bandmates, financially, you know, very well and made sure she got paid if she'd been with the scorny music, musician who might have also been a junkie and abusive, then, um, you know, she she would not necessarily have got paid or in the same way. So I think she was making, I think she was making complicated choices, but I think that they, they're not as simple as the surface. As, they may well, as I mentioned earlier, John Hammond produced many of her uh, recordings, at least the early ones, put her on some of the major labels of the time. When did he begin recording her? I think John Hammond began in 33, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, that early? Uh, yeah, yeah, with Benny Goodman. Yeah, yeah, that's when he claims to have 
discovered her in a, in a basement in, in, in Harlem. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. She, we're talking about Billie Holiday with uh, the two of the people involved in making the film, it's director James Erskine and it's executive producer Michelle E. Smith. Uh, she wrote a number of her own songs uh, and uh, one of them, uh, God Bless the Child, which became a standard, was inspired by an event in her life. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We'll hear that in a second, <laughs> but uh, uh, this is one of her early hits. What happened? Why did she, uh, what led her to, to compose the song? Uh, Michelle? I think she had, had uh, an argument with her, with, with, with her mother when she was a young child uh, mm -hmm. uh, over money, you know, and she wanted to sort of uh, say, I've got to have my own money one day. You know? <laughs> so she uh, said, God bless the child has got her his own and then later remembered that she had said that? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right, that's right. And that had given her the inspiration. It, it, she recorded in 1941, and let's listen to it. Got shall have them that's not shall lose. So the Bible said, and it still is news. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got his own, that's got his own. The strong gets more while the weak ones fade. Empty pockets don't ever make the grade. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got his own. That's got his own. Got 
You can see why John Hammond said she, her singing reminded him of horn players. She just has, uh, she, she doesn't sound like other vocalists, but you can read pain into her voice on a lot of the, the songs. Uh, uh, didn't one of the people that Linda interviewed say that when Ella Fitzgerald sings, my man's gone now, you assume he's just going down the street to buy a loaf of bread, but when Billy sings it, you know he's gone for good. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's a great quote from Bobby Tucker, I think, who played with both of them. And, you know, it is that pain. It is that sort of sense of self-loathing as well. There's a, at the end of the film, we have a, a Billy sing um, uh, I Love You, Porgy, and she's singing actually the Nina Simone arrangement, and if you, which Nina Simone arranged in 58. And if you play those two songs side by side from these two great singers, you really understand the difference between the two of them as artists, you know, uh, um, Nina Simone is a sort of beautiful uh, poem to, to sort of lost love that's slightly out of reach, whereas Billy's is just much more about pain and self-loathing and the feeling of I, I, I'm with this guy because I can't get away from it. You know. Well, is it possible to listen to uh, many of her recordings without reading something autobiographical in them? Don't explain, taint nobody's business if I do. Good Morning Heartache, Billy's Blues, as I mentioned, Strange Fruit. Uh, it, 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 it just seems like she picked material to some degree that reflected aspects of her life. But I and, think that's uh, why they are treasured, because she delivers them with heart and emotion, because they do touch aspects of her life. And uh, Sylvia Sims says in the film, or on the tapes, Billie Holiday sang only truth. She knew nothing else. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. You know, when Billie gives it, she gives it all. She's not trying to... She's trying to sing in the, in the moment, I think, you know, of what she feels. And it's, to me, at times, like, she's drawing on spirits from the past, you know, or from ghosts around her, you know. She's not just singing to follow um, musical notation or to follow the piano. She's, she's singing from a more ethereal place, I think. 
And she, as we said, some of the songs reflect things that happened in her life. After she caught her then husband, Jimmy Monroe, with lipstick on his collar, she wrote, Don't Explain. Yep. Uh, she was well. She co-wrote. She she co-wrote that. Yeah. I mean, I think that was true throughout her life. You know, she was. She mm. was. She, you know, I don't think many of the men that she was with were faithful to her. I'm not sure she was always faithful to them either. You know, I think she lived a slightly freer life and a freer life in her imagination, where, uh, um, you know, certainly in her early life, she she wanted to be free sexually. She didn't want to be owned by anybody. She didn't want to you know, be controlled in that way. And she, she at the same time was, was ready to tolerate people for their weaknesses as well as their strength. So let's listen to Billie Holiday singing, Don't Explain.
was love Don't explain Billy Holiday singing Don't Explain. Interestingly, uh, although she uh, came to prominence singing with some of the great jazz musicians of her time and some of the leading swing bands, she wanted strings on that recording. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, she's a, she's a real lady. She wants to try um, new musical ideas, you know, and I think she deserves to have an orchestra behind her. And it sounds yeah. so much fuller with orchestra as well. Mm. Oh, it's very effective. I don't know who wrote the arrangement, but it's very effective. My guests are James Erskine, who's the uh, writer and director of a number of films, uh, some award-winning films, uh, and now this one, Billy, and Michelle Smith, who's the executive producer and also oversees the, uh, the estates of not just Billy Holiday, but Tammy Wynette. That's a <laughs> yes, I, well, they are very similar in the sense that they are strong women in and of their in and of themselves, and mm -hmm. totally different musical genres. That, and I also oversee the uh, brand of Stax Records, the label Stax Records. Well, Billy recorded for so many labels, uh, including some of the the leading labels of the day, and then some struggling labels as well. Uh, she had a really interesting. Uh, recording career, uh, but she was a pretty big star, and yet uh, she was a had a serious drug problem. When did she start using hard drugs? Gosh, um, I don't know when she started uh, using hard drugs. I mean, it's uh, it's a matter of some debate when she started. Sometime in the, in in the thirties, you know, mm -hmm. possibly the early forties. It's 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 not clear, you know. And how many times was she sent to prison? She, well, I, sorry, Michelle. No, go ahead, James, sorry. Um, well, she spent a year uh, in a federal penitentiary, you know, in 1948. She was arrested numerous times. Um, you know, she had, when she was younger, she was arrested for prostitution and then a couple of nights in jail cells, but the major one was the one where she was she was arrested in the late forties and went to prison for a year and a day. And uh, and a uh, someone in that field, uh, one of the the, uh, the people who would have arrested her, points out that she never sold drugs. Uh, that maybe she shouldn't have gone to prison. So, do you think that she was arrested partly because she was a prominent black artist? Michelle? I was going to I was going to say James, you want to start with that one and I'll finish, or you want to do it the other way around? <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think you should start. You, you should start with that one. I think you know as a Brit, okay, I, I'll I think, start. You, know, you finish. We'll tag team. Um, yes. I mean, you had other prominent white performers that were never um, arrested, that were never targeted. I mean, we know for a fact that the FBI went after her for at least 20 years. Um, and targeted, uh, Harry Anslinger. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, because she dared to be black, successful, I mean, she didn't dare to be black, she was, uh, black, successful, female. Um, and 
she sang strange fruit to white audience or mixed audiences for 20 years. She dared to uh, sing that song in social protest. And yes, there were many people who were doing drugs, worse drugs than she was at the time, but they targeted her. And um, it wasn't just once or twice. It was orchestrated. And, um, you know, it's detailed further in the film. And uh, so my answer to your question is yes. Simply because she was, uh, well, she was a woman. And on top, and as you say, she uh, she sang Strange Fruit, which uh, probably upset an awful lot of people, even though it is right on target. Well, the first night yeah. she sang it, they say that, sorry, James, go ahead. No, to finish what you're saying. The first night she sang it. I was going to say, when she sang it at Cafe Society, uh, you know, it was, supposedly very quiet that, you know, when she finished, people were like, done. And then it was one person starting the applause to the whole room erupting in applause. So I think, you know, people did not know how to handle that. It was the first time someone dared to present them the other side of reality, um, you know, to an audience that had more privilege, predominantly had more privilege than she did. So, um, yeah, some people took offense to it. Some people walked out, were outraged and walked out. Um, so, you know, you have the gamut there. and um, But you see how she stood her ground and continued to sing that song. Mm -hmm. There were even instances where people would complain when she was singing with a white band that she was on the stage with the white musicians. So it was a... It was a bad time. Um, I guess things aren't great right now, but we can't imagine that happening anymore. Uh, what do you think uh, of, of her as a songwriter? So the, the, the songs that we played are very effective. Uh, so do you, do you think that she, uh, she could have made it as a songwriter as well? Well, she wrote many songs, and I don't know, James, if you want to go into this, but she wrote many songs with Arthur Herzog. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I think if she had a right, if they had continued to partner, uh, that I think, yes, she could have continued to have a, a great career as a songwriter. But despite her great fame and success, yeah. didn't she die almost penniless? Yes. I'm sorry, James, what were you going to say? Or were you going to add? Oh, I was going to say, had, 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 I think had she lived longer, then she would have written more songs. You know, I mm -hmm. think she, she had to, you know, reach a point where she was confident enough to collaborate on songs, confident enough to collaborate on words, you know, confident enough to, you know, I think she, she wasn't, she wasn't growing up as a singer-songwriter with a guitar. You know, she, she's growing up singing other people's songs. And I think it takes a lot of confidence to put your own material out there when you're known for, you know, doing songs that other people have written and you have that support to do that, you know? So I think that she wasn't given enough opportunity to speak with her true voice. But the, but the songs are very effective. They're beautifully, the lyrics are beautifully written. Uh, and she, didn't she leave school when she was in the 11th grade? 
Oh, yeah, I think that's right, but I think. Sorry, James. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, she she certainly left. She certainly left school school young, but I think you know that's why she chose to work with good collaborators. You know, who could help mm -hmm. her frame her thoughts into a formal structure. You know, I think that's um, and blend. You know, where she wanted to go with it musically into into a structure. You know, so I think she was smart to find people to collaborate with. You know. Now I. We mentioned that she was a big star. I saw her at, at a, an incredible concert that featured Dizzy Gillespie's big band with Ray Charles and a, the Thelonious Monk had John Coltrane and there were some other big stars. And yet she was the last act. She was in a sense the headliner. So as I asked you earlier, uh, should we be shouldn't we be surprised that she died almost penniless, Michelle? I'm thinking on how to answer that. So should we be surprised? Um, what well, was it that the yes, people took her money from her? Yes. Yes. I mean, she didn't manage her money the best. She also had men who she had as managers who were not managing her money and taking her money. Um, I think some of them were with her because of her money. Um, so should we be surprised? Um Yes and no, in the sense that uh, I don't think she was raised to understand the depth of what money, the power and the depth of having money and how fast you can make it, but how fast it can and can leave as well. Um, and I also think, though, if she had lived longer, I don't think she would have been with Louis McKay. Mm. Um, he kind of ripped her off. She was going to write him out of her will when she died before she could sign the will. Correct. Yeah, that's I think, right. I think, um, go ahead, James. Yeah, I think that period of time, you know, um, very few women controlled their money in that period. You know, I mean, I can't remember what year it was that a woman could get a credit card in her own name in America. You know, she 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 wasn't expected to control money. She was expected to be given money. And I think money was also used to control her, you know, and, and we know that Louis was pretty pretty uh, nasty character who controlled her and, and basically took her money by and large. So she 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 died with great worth because obviously her recordings were going to produce royalties in the future, but she had ceased to be able to perform effectively in, in the same way. She'd also lost out in the fact of never having her cabaret card renewed following the uh, felony. And she, um, you know... Her income, course, her income was shut off at the period of which she was also losing more and more control. And I think, you know, ultimately, she didn't so she didn't lose the money as, as much as she was never given it. You mentioned she didn't have a cabaret card because there was a law that denied people who'd been arrested, especially on drug charges, from working in nightclubs. Uh, just one other thing before we end this: um, How can people access this film? Well, the film is available in uh, theaters, although obviously not in New York in the current crisis, but it's also available to digi digitally to Amazon and Apple and iTunes and all those places. Mm -hmm. Well, it's very effective. I was very moved. It's just great to see her sing these songs because her face is so expressive. And my great thanks to my guest, James Erskine, who's the writer and director of Billy, and Michelle Smith, who was his, its executive producer. It's been a pleasure talking with you.
Our pleasure too. Thank you. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write me about any of our shows, or if you just want to say hello, you can reach me by email at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to take uh, just a few minutes to ask you for your support of this station. We need all of you, our listeners, who have the means to do so, to step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level they're cap- comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep the unique content that we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Remember that WBAI is entirely sponsored by listener donations. We don't take grants, funding, credits, corporate sponsorship. We don't run disguised ads of any kind. All we do is we rely on our listeners 100% to keep us going. Uh, But it's why we're able to bring you the kind of in-depth one-hour interviews that we do on this show. Nobody ever can call and say, hey, I don't want you to do that because that's going to affect my business. So why not step up right now by going to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep Leonard Lopate at large and WBAI on the air. Uh, And one great way to support the station uh, is to spread out your contribution throughout the year by becoming a BAI buddy. BAI buddies are listeners who contribute $10 or more to each each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on the show. And they help us to plan for the future and give BAI a steady, predictable source of support. But whatever level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is that you do so right now to keep this experiment in completely listener-sponsored radio alive and well and New York radio dial. Um, Last month, Netflix released the new David Fincher film, Mank, starring Gary Oldman, about legendary screenwriter Herman J. Mankiewicz developing the screenplay for Citizen Kane. On tomorrow's show, I'll speak with Sidney Ladinson Stern, whose book, The Brothers Mankiewicz, Hope, Heartbreak, and Hollywood Classics, tells the story of Mank, along with his brother, Joseph Mankiewicz, wrote, produced, and directed over 150 movies. We'll see you then.